You're listening to a message from Victory Christian Center in Farmer City, Illinois. For more information on Victory, please contact us at vccfarmercity.org. church this morning. If you brought your Bible, open it to Ephesians chapter 4. That's where we're going to pick up. We uh, are in a series we have been studying for several weeks now. Um, spiritual development, spiritual growth. Um, the, the Apostle Paul compares spiritual growth to natural growth. And so we've been looking at various stages of natural growth for things that we can learn from and and get a better understanding of what spiritual growth looks like. And we are well into that. We've been through all the stages of childhood, and we I believe last week we started into the first stage of adulthood. And we're going to do that for a little bit before we close out this series. Um, the core for this series is Ephesians chapter 4. Let's go ahead and read that, starting in verse 11. Speaking of Jesus, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect or mature or grown-up man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Um, Let me look at just verse 15 in the New Living Translation. It says, instead, see, I like how it made that switch. I I keep putting the word rather in there. They put the word instead in there just to draw our attention. But hold on now. There was all the not we're not going to do. Here's what we are going to do. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. And so... Of all the things he could have said, he summed up the whole thing, really. I see it as two things. You might even say it's one thing, but I see two there. Speaking the truth in love. Now, the two things. Speaking the truth in love, I like that. But I'm trying to kind of squeeze in the second one, walking in love. And in a sense, that's what he's saying. Because yes, we need to speak truth, but it's not enough just to even speak truth. Are you speaking that truth in love? Is it an outflow of your love walk out of everything we're doing? Could I say then, if you wanted to boil it down as simple as you could, there's the chief characteristic of maturity, of being a, can I say, spiritual grown-up. What Speak the truth in love as a part of your 
walk in love. And that would impact everything you do every day. It's a lifestyle. Now, in the same chapter, we jumped down a few verses to verse 25. I believe we looked at this last week. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. In verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And so I still see the same pattern in there. In verse 25, he's talking about no lying, only speak truth. But then in verse 26, I could summarize that all under the umbrella of walk in love. Are you seeing that walk in love? Um, now, before I dig into that, I want to look at First uh, Corinthians 3.3. 3. Put the New King James on the screen. I don't even have it in my notes. He says, For you are still carnal, for there are envy, strife, and divisions among you. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? I won't tug at that thread too hard, but that's an interesting phrase. If you're just behaving like mere men... What are we supposed to be behaving like? Oh, we're supposed to look a whole lot more like God. As we grow up, we don't behave like, you know, just mere men. The world can be mere men. There's a higher standard for us. But I want to look at this, the same verse out of the Living Bible. Now, this is a paraphrase. It came out of the 70s, I believe. But it's interesting. The Living Bible, he says, For you are still only baby Christians. Controlled by your own desires, not God's. When you are jealous of one another and divide up into quarreling groups, doesn't that prove you are still babies wanting your own way? So now, granted, it's a paraphrase, but boy, that just kind of puts skin on it, doesn't it? What are you trying to say? (laughs) You know, if you're just still arguing, in a sense, the arguing, strife, envy, divisions, quarreling, you're living like mere men. What? The level we're supposed to live on is above that. It's a level of walking in love, speaking truth in love, and we don't get hung up in the envy and the strife and the divisions and quarreling. No, we live above that. that that's mere men living. We're above that. And then back to Ephesians 4, he did say, he said, be angry and do not sin. So right at face value then, it's not a sin to be angry. There are times you get angry. There are times it's right to be angry. But it should never go to a point of sin. You can be angry and not lead it, have it lead into sin. That's what he's talking about there. Um, anger is not a sign of immaturity. How you deal with anger is a sign of immaturity or maturity, depending on how you deal with it. Where do you let that anger go? What do you do with it? Question. Isn't God like that? Does God ever get angry? Oh, yeah. There's lots of examples in the Bible of when God gets angry. But he never sins. So does God get angry? Oh, yeah. Um, Does he get angry quickly and easily? No. Um, Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, 
He can get angry, but it doesn't happen quickly. It, it takes him a while to get there. You might even say it takes a lot to get him there. Now, he can get angry, but he's slow to do it. He's so abounding in mercy. So he can get angry, but it won't happen over just any little old thing. You know, it takes something significant to anger the Lord. And even then, it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. It's over a period. This is another indicator of our own degree of spiritual maturity. Don't answer out loud, but we should ask ourselves the question, what does it take to anger you? What kinds of things does it take to anger you? How much does it take to make you mad, and how quickly can it make you mad? Those types of things. Hmm. The less it takes to upset you, the more developed you are spiritually. The longer it takes to upset you, also a good indicator that you're growing. Why? Don't get upset over all the things you used to. Are you seeing it? We, I think I talked about this in a previous message. I think it was a couple messages ago that kids can get upset just over the silliest things. I gave some examples of when my girls were much younger, not today, but when they were much younger, things like a balloon popping could just bring them to tears. Now, for an adult, you're thinking, it's a balloon. Got more where that came from. This is not a big deal. But to a kid, oh, the world was ending. The balloon popped. Are you seeing? So the types of things that would make you upset are indicators of where you're at. You see? Other examples, I talked about ice cream that fall, fell off the cone. I think we were at Disney World. That came up at lunch later. We couldn't decide who it was that actually dropped the ice cream. At one point, we actually thought it was Crystal, but that, that didn't fit my illustration at all. So I'm not sure where we landed. Might have been Addie. I don't know. We'll just leave it there because they're not here to defend themselves. But that was another example. Um, headless Barbies was a big deal at our house. Usually happened when the boy cousins came over and heads got popped off. And oh boy, uh, that was a big deal at our house. There was a time that they would come to tears and punches over who sat at which table, or not which table, which chair at the dinner table. Really? Luckily, that's not been so much lately. But when they were younger, oh, we're just trying to eat a meal. But no, they're in my chair. It was a big deal. All that to say, they were quarreling over nothing. Lots of chairs. We can put a plate at any of them. Got the same food, you know. But Paul was saying that. In that same verse we read, he's like, are you still quarreling over these things? He's, he's saying, aren't you still kids? He's saying, grow up. He says, I'm of Paul. Another one says, I'm not of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Another said, I'm not of either of them. I only follow Jesus. And he's like, come on. You know, grow up type things. You're quarreling over insignificant things, and that proves where you're at developmentally. Mature people, people who are like the Lord, can handle some stuff and not get angry or can handle some degrees of anger and still not sin. All right. Now, there may be things happening that they don't like. There's things going on that they don't agree with. <laughs> There's things that they're not enjoying. This situation is not pleasing them. Yet, they stay calm. 
What's that phrase? Calm, cool, and collected. They maintain composure and most importantly, stay in control. Are you with me? They remain calm and in control. And guess what? Sometimes they remain in control for week after week, even though the situation's still going on. Month after month. And they're not happy about it, but they stay in control. You can make a righteous man mad, but it takes a bit. And you can't do it easily. And even if you do, they'll still stay in control. They don't lose control. Can you be angry and not sin? Yeah. Yeah. Can you be angry and not lash out with your mouth? There's where a lot of us get in trouble. You get angry and words start flying out of your mouth that you can't take back. I did like, uh, oh, what was his name? I'm drawing a blank. I can see him in my face. I can't think of his name. That's embarrassing. Good thing he doesn't know me. <laughs> He's a Texas preacher. Um, well, anyway, his words were, what he said was, words are nuclear. You, sometimes you release words and it's like setting off a bomb and you can't get them back. You can say you're sorry, but it doesn't take back the damage. Words are nuclear. Jimmy Evans got it out. Jimmy Evans says that. It was in a marriaging, marriage class he was teaching, talking about sometimes how we hurt our spouses with words that you can't bring back. But it's, it's a truth. It's, words are nuclear. Can you be angry and not let those words out? Not tear people up with words? Yeah. It's a sign of growing up. I've known people, you have too, and if you've said this, just smile and no one will know because I'm not, I'm not thinking of anybody. But there have been people who'd said, ah, oh, you don't want to see me mad. You don't want to see me angry. It's not pretty when I get mad. And they're almost bragging. In reality, they're telling off on themselves. What are they saying? I'm just a kid. I haven't learned to control that. Isn't it? That's what scripture says. I'm thinking, well, you're not half as bad as you think you are. (laughs) I'm not going to go there. I want you to look at this one. Proverbs 14, verse 29 says, He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. Now, he's contrasting here. And the first, first part's clear. He who is slow to wrath has great understanding. So then what's the opposite? He who's impulsive. Or you could say he who is quick to wrath. Um, other translations bring that out. A New Living Translation. People with understanding control their anger. A hot temper shows great foolishness. But it's an indicator. It's an indicator of spiritual development. Um, another translation, here's the New Century Version. It says, patient people have great understanding, but people with quick tempers show their foolishness. Don't put it up yet, because you're quick. I'm going to do one more. Not yet. I'm just going to remind you, this is a Bible translation. I didn't do it. I didn't write it. I'm just reporting the news. This is called the Good News Translation. You ready? Okay, Kyle. If you stay calm, you are wise. But if you have a hot temper, you only show how stupid you are. 
Not my words. I'm just reading. I'm just reading the Bible. Did you know the word stupid? If you get the right translation, the word stupid is in the Bible. <laughs> How about that? With our, with a lot of younger kids, that's the S word you're not allowed to say. Use that word on your brother or sister and get your mouth washed out with soap or who knows what. You know, the S word. He said stupid. <laughs> you get the right Bible translation to send there. But what's the context? Uncontrolled hot temper. Oh, mercy. Losing your temper is a display of foolishness. And it's dangerous. It's something I learned from all my years of boxing. Did I lose anyone? I saw a lot of eyebrows go up. <laughs> really? Boxing? Okay, no. I got to explain. I've never boxed in my life. But a couple decades ago, I got really into a book series because I got turned on to a TV show on the Lifetime channel called Spencer for Hire. And I just fell in love with that TV show. And I found out it was based on a series of books by Robert B. Parker. And next thing I know, I'd read like 30 of his novels all on this this Spencer private detective who had a, his, he, in his younger days, he was a boxer. And so I learned stuff reading this book. Come to find out it was true. He, he was reporting true stuff. But anyway, he, long story short, if you're in a boxing match, or in his case, a fist fight, <laughs> you know, but if you're in a fight with someone, the last thing you want to do is lose your cool. Get angry. Because when you get angry, you start making foolish moves. And you start open your, opening yourself up, and it's the fastest way to lose a fight is to get angry. And that's one of the reasons then in a lot of places you'll see so much trash talking. They're trying to get you angry. Because when you get angry, you make mistakes. And when you make mistakes, you lose fights. Even in the boxing ring, that's, that's a saying. I, I looked it up because of the Internet. Um, this was a quote from a boxing trainer. He said, uncontrolled aggression is anger, and to a trained fighter, such anger is not only useless, it is po- positively detrimental. He says, an old boxing adage is never lose your temper in the ring. I'm adding, it's the fastest way to lose a fight. He said, uncontrolled aggression leads to crude, unfocused, and ineffective punching, That's why wild punchers are rarely power punchers. Angry, out-of-control boxers are also the sort who get hit because their uncontrolled swings leave them wide open to the precise punches of smart fighters. Now, I'm not trying to teach on boxing this morning, but the idea is when you lose your cool, you do foolish things, and you set yourself up to lose whatever fight you're in. Now, put that in the bigger context of what we're talking about. Yeah. When you lose your cool, you set yourself up, and it costs you something. How many people lose their cool, and hopefully just with words flying, but in some cases, even worse situations, and they had their way. They had their say. They let them know what they were really thinking. They gave them a piece of their mind. They told them what they could do with that, where they could put it, and don't let the door hit them on the way out. I mean, they had their say. But then when it was all said and done, they lost a relationship. They lost a job. They, they, there's all kinds of things. You could lose a position. You could lose a blessing. And many of those things never get back. It can't be restored. Um, James 1.20 says, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Well, if that's the case, and it is, then what does the wrath of man produce? unrighteousness the opposite of what we're going for the wrath of man produces 
unrighteousness. Who's trying to get you to produce unrighteousness? Not God. (laughs) The devil. He will work with you, put thoughts in your head. He'll push and pressure and prod you to try to get you angry, to try to get you to lose control. And he'll give you all kinds of words to say once you've lost control. Well, he's setting you up for unrighteousness. I've heard stories. I don't think I've ever known a person like this personally. Praise God. No one's coming to mind. But I'm thinking of people who get so angry they resort to physical abuse. I don't know of any cases, so praise God. I hope you don't either. But people that would resort to physical abuse, husbands that would beat their wives or their kids or something, and and then they would say, well, I just got so mad I, I couldn't help it. I just lost control. Well, I think that's true in a small percentage, but I got a funny feeling. And I'm thinking more of the the men that that would uh, physically abuse a woman. I'm thinking, well, if we take that same man, let's put him in front of a 300-pound linebacker, and then let's get him angry. And let's see if he loses control with the linebacker. And I got a funny feeling that in most cases, they would somehow find an ability to maintain their control. Why would that be? Because their self-preservation was stronger than that anger. You see what I mean? Now, I would admit there's probably some cases where it is the other way. They really did lose control. All I will say to that is it didn't happen overnight. You're not born like that. That's something you learn to do. What do many people do? They do what they can get away with. So people that genuinely do lose control, it's because they have trained their bodies to do that over a long period of time. In many cases, it starts with children. Most of us probably flirted with that, and our moms and dads drove that right back out of us. And especially us older, probably drove it right back out of us with a paddle. That was still in fashion. And I won't get off on all that. But you're supposed to. Kids need to be taught that you don't get away with stuff like that. The the temper tantrums, the anger, the just flying off the handle. Oh, no, no. You discipline that right back out of them. Because if you don't, you're setting them up for a lifetime of failure. That's a learned behavior. And most of them learned it young. So good parents drive that. A lot of us have never dealt with that because we had good parents. Drove it right back out of us. Does that make sense? You know, a lot of that's a learned behavior. Um, Proverbs 19.19 says, A man of great wrath will suffer punishment. It's a promise. That's why a good parent teaches her kid that. You don't behave this way. It will lead to punishment. Because if we don't get it out of them as kids and they start doing it as an adults, it's going to lead to far worse punishment than a paddle. But look at the second part of that verse. If you rescue him, you'll have to do it again. Rescue him from what? The punishment. If they get themselves in trouble... They need to experience the full weight of the punishment. If we do it right, it's when they're young, and it's mom and dad's punishment, and they need to experience the full weight of it. If it's as an adult, 
you need to let them experience the weight of the punishment. If you don't, they're going to do it again. Um, look at that verse. In Did I give you the complete Jewish Bible? Put that up there. A violent-tempered person will be punished. If you try to save him from it, you make things worse. You see it? That's a lesson we need to learn. Hopefully we all learned it young, but we have to learn it. It's a promise. Now that's not necessarily a Bible verse we're all just sinking into saying, oh, now God, you promised. No, no, this one will come. I don't even know if you have to apply faith. This one's just going to come all on its own. Don't have to believe God. Oh God, please may this promise work for me. No, it's coming. It's more like a law than a promise. I've seen adults act this way. Um, I, I'm pointing, uh, uh, Kyle's not here this morning, but in, in our years together, we knew a guy, it was a business relationship. This is a grown adult man, and I'm not going to give any more information on that because I'm not trying to say a bunch of stuff, but knew a guy that would just, as a full-grown adult, would just throw temper tantrums like a child and would behave that way. Now, I didn't get too close to him, but I heard lots of stories. Interestingly, raised his own kid that way. And his son, as an adult, threw little temper tantrums like a child. Only it got him in trouble. Um, at one point, I, I, this is years ago, the, not the father, but the son was in a lawsuit because he was being sued for physical assault. Because he got so angry at someone that he opened the door to their vehicle, pulled them out of their vehicle, and proceeded to beat the tar out of them. And they sued him for physical assault. What were they guilty of doing? Well, you understand, they drove their vehicle on his grass. So clearly, if someone drives on your grass, you pull them out of their truck and beat them up, right? I wish I was making this stuff up. Those are lessons you're supposed to learn as a kid. And you, you, you don't want to wait till you're adults. So what's the solution then? James 1.19. I think I got my verses flip-flop. But James 1.19, he says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. There's your solution. When things start ramping up and things are angering you and something's happening, what is step number one? Be swift to hear. Respond with your ears, not your mouth. Slow to let your mouth open. And when your mouth does open, it should open with more questions. Now, now, now what happened? And try to get more information so you can do some more hearing. So many times... People blow up and they don't know the whole story. They don't see the big picture. They don't have all the pieces of information and they make things worse because they weren't slow to hear. Which one do we do first? I heard someone say this one time. God gave you two ears and one mouth. You should do twice as much listening as you do talking. We should be quick to hear, swift to hear, slow to speak. Um, control your mouth, open your ears, ask questions, and then one more step. 
before you respond with your mouth. Listen on the inside. You did some listening out here on the outside, but again, before you respond, what's God saying on the inside? What's the Holy Spirit saying to you on the inside? Look for a leading before you respond. How many problems will you avoid if you're quick to listen, not only to the situation and try to get all the information you can, but then listen on the inside? We can avoid all kinds of problems that way. Proverbs 16.23, the heart of the wise teaches his mouth and adds learning to his lips. See, when you take time to check your heart first, it'll teach your mouth. Here's what you need to say. Here's how you handle the situation. Being spirit-led in how you respond to circumstances. Choose to react with control and with purpose. That's how you're going to do back in Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. Are you with me? Again, isn't God that way? Let's look at it again. Psalm 103.8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. Put mercy in there twice. If we're going to be more like Him, that's going to start to describe us. Merciful with people who make dumb choices. Gracious when what they're doing angers us. Slow to anger. And again, abounding in mercy. Are you seeing it? Psalm 136.1 Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good for His mercy endures forever. Praise God for that. You know, so many times when we think we're at the end of our rope, man, our patience is gone. I've got one nerve left and they're standing on it. We feel like we're at that point where we just can't take it anymore. And at that same point, haven't even started to irritate God. His mercy is so long. His patience is so long. His long-suffering is so long. So many times God will say something, and it will absolutely come to pass. A hundred years later. A thousand years later. So how many times in the Bible did God say, and judgment is going to happen? Then 400 years later, it did. He just, it's not quick. He's slow. But he's full of mercy. Uh, To quote a New Testament verse, he gives you lots of space to repent. The goodness of God will lead you to repentance. And so even in that bad place, he's showing goodness. Why? Trying to get him to repent. Trying to get him to repent. Hmm. All that to say, yes, we can get mad. There's a right way to handle it. There's a right, right way to react, and we need to be more like Him. Okay, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I have another thing I want to talk about, but it's more than I can cover in what's left this morning, so I'm just kind of going to introduce it and look at a piece of it, and then we'll we'll pick it up next week. But I want to go back. I mean, we've been in James. I want to go back to James verse chapter 1, verse 2. He says, My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Wow, not a single amen. No one shouted hallelujah at that one. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's not a normal reaction to trials. In, in fact, he says, count it all joy. 
if joy was your natural reaction, he really wouldn't have to write the verse because he knows you'd already be joyful because you're in a trial, right? So by the very fact that he says, count it all joy, that tells us, okay, when I start to fall into that trial, this is not going to be my natural reaction. I'm probably not going to be joyful. I'm going to have to make a decision, a choice to be joyful in that trial. So the temptation might be to cry or be depressed or get angry, but uh, James says, count it all joy. Well, where I want to go this morning, I'll give you a little tidbit of joy, but I want to Compare and contrast joy and happiness. Because they're not the same thing. A lot of people think those are synonymous terms, and, and they are not. Especially in Scripture, they're not. The word happy actually means favored by luck or fortune. I didn't write down which dictionary I was in, so I don't, but one of the dictionaries I looked up said that happy means favored by luck or fortune. In our English language, it actually comes from the root word hap, which means chance or fortune. Happiness comes and goes as freely as the circumstances you're in. Happiness is circumstantial. Okay? Joy, on the other hand, means gladness or calm delight, but joy is not circumstantial. On the contrary, Galatians chapter 5 says joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of your human spirit. And it operates the same way as all the fruit of your human spirit. What's the first one on the list? Love. When you got born again, the love of God was shed abroad in your heart. It's in there. But does it come out automatically? No. That's something we learn to walk in and we learn to grow in. We learn to walk in love in situations where that's not what we're really feeling. My feelings want to respond different, but I'm going to choose to walk in love and I grow in love and I begin to produce the fruit of love. We talk about patience the same way. You don't grow in patience when everything is just going smooth. You grow in patience when you get put in situations that require you to exercise patience. It's like a muscle. you got to exercise it. So you force yourself to be patient when you don't really want to, but you grow in that. Joy is the same way, which fits with James. You learn to respond in joy in situations where that's not what you're feeling. You're feeling something different, but you're going to choose to be joyful. There's situations like that where maybe you're gritting your teeth. And it is not what you're feeling, but you're like, I will be joyful. That's how you grow in it. That's what he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Trials are one of your times to grow in joy. It's got to be stretched. It's got to be exercised. It's a fruit of the Spirit, which is very different than happiness. Now, I'll say this, um, and I'm going to shift gears a little bit, but how do you remain in joy? Here's one way. Probably not the only way. Here's one way. Psalm 1611. I'm not reading the whole verse. Um, I'm looking at the middle part. He says, in your presence is fullness of joy. Where's one place you find joy? In the presence of God. When you get into his presence, it's full of joy. Now, what gets interesting is if you connect that with a verse in Nehemiah, it's chapter 8, verse 10. And again, I'm just looking, I think, at the end of the verse. But he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
Which again, why would he be telling you count it all joy when you're in various trials? Because that's your strength. And that's what's going to get you through the trial is when you choose to count it all joy. Now, we can talk about that more at some point. I want to shift back to happiness, but let me make one statement before I go. I heard Dr. Jerry Savell say this many, many years ago. He quoted those two verses, in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy, and the joy of the Lord is your strength. And then he made this statement, a person who isn't full of joy all the time is a person who doesn't spend all their time in the presence of Jesus. Ooh, interesting. So I heard that as a young man, and I took that to heart. So in my life, where I started was, I'm like, okay, I need to count it all joy. I need to exercise joy. I need to pursue joy. And I've learned some things. Joy and faith go hand in hand. There's a connection there. They work together. So I need to be a person who's joy by choice, and I'm just going to ignore happiness. Happiness just has no place in my life. It's completely circumstantial. It's fleeting. It comes and goes based on things I can't control. So just in myself, I really just pushed happiness off. Until one day I'm listening to a preacher who started connecting happiness to things I've never connected it to before, and it it got me curious. Um, So, okay, hold on. Let me say one other thing real quick. Another reason I pushed happiness off is because I saw a lot of people do a lot of dumb things in the name of happiness trying to do these things because it makes me happy. Or have you ever heard someone say, well, I'm going to go do this because doesn't God want me happy? And well, that's that's a loaded statement. It's kind of a loaded question. And, and then it was just another reason why I'm like, all right, I don't like this happiness thing. But now back to what I was saying. The word blessed in the New Testament, and I'm thinking Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Okay. That word blessed is the Greek word makarios, and it means blessed and happy. And I thought, what? And then I looked it up. That Greek word is in your Bible 50 times, and 44 of them it's translated blessed. Five of them it's translated happy, and one time it's translated happier. And I'm thinking, really? So I went back to the Beatitudes and I pulled a swap because I'm just curious. So it's Matthew 5, 3. I think I gave these to Kyle. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right. I guess I can deal with that. Happy are those who mourn. Really? (laughs) Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Okay. Happy are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Okay. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. All right, I'm liking this. This is all right. Happy are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. All right, I'm liking this. We're doing good. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Ah, we're doing good. All right. Verse 10. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If, did you hear the brakes? I just hit the brake pedal. Wait a minute. What? (laughs) Happy are those who are persecuted? I don't know. This isn't panning out anymore. 
Verse 11, happy are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Happy are you. Jesus, what are you saying? Verse 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, now I'm chewing on this. And I'm kind of seeing what he says here. Happy are those who are persecuted, but not because they're persecuted. He kept going. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. They're not happy because they're going through persecution. They're happy because there's going to be reward connected to that. They probably didn't ask for the persecution. I don't know that we really do that. But if it comes along, count it all joy. You can even be happy. Why? There's going to be reward connected to this. I'm thinking of the Apostle Paul. Was he ever persecuted? Have you read the New Testament? (laughs) This guy had persecution follow him everywhere he went. What? He was bringing the Pauline revelation, we call it. He was bringing revelation of the New Testament church. He had revelation that even the apostle Peter said, that was kind of hard to understand. He got some deep stuff. He had so much revelation he was bringing to the New Testament church that the devil was so mad about it, he personally assigned one of his, well, Paul called him a messenger of Satan, assigned to follow him everywhere he went and just stir up trouble everywhere Paul went. And that's what his ministry looked like for the entire time. Everywhere he went, the devil stirred up trouble. What he had, he had a messenger of Satan assigned to follow him. I don't know that any of us, any of us have stirred up that much trouble in, in the kingdom of darkness that we've got a messenger of Satan assigned to us. No, but Paul did. And, uh, Among other things, I'm not going to go read the whole passage, but three times he had 39 stripes put on his back when he was whipped. It left scars in his back. Same thing it did to Jesus. Now, Jesus got 40 stripes, and by his stripes we were healed. Paul got 39 stripes three times. That's more than Jesus. And all kinds of other stuff. But then about those stripes... What did Paul say about it? In Galatians 6, 17, he said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. That's what he called them. He had physical scars on his back. He says, ah, those are the marks of Jesus. Not that he was asking to be beaten, but in the outside of it, he just said, those are the marks of Jesus. Not an interesting way to look at it. But why is he saying that? Because he knows there's reward connected to that. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. What did Paul call all of that persecution that he suffered for his entire ministry? Light affliction. Ah! Just a light affliction. Boy, if he's got light affliction, what do we got? For our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What is that? Reward. That's the reward. Did he ask for persecution? No. How did he get through it? Joy. What's on the other side of it? Reward. 
an eternal way to glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, I'm not saying, hey, let's all get excited and go looking for persecution. No, persecution just seems to have a way of finding us. I'm not going to look for it. But if it comes knocking, we're prepared to handle it. And I think we'll talk more next week, but step one, count it all joy. Right. That's going to give you the strength to get through it. And then when you come out the other side victorious, you'll have great reward attached to it. Are you following me? Now, so back to that thing then. Well, doesn't God want me happy? Well, yes. He wants you happy. But that's not his highest priority. Now, I want to be careful because I don't want my words to get misinterpreted. Um, one thing we sh- you would think is obvious, and I've found it's not obvious. Um, he doesn't want you to go sin just because you think the sin will make you happy. And doesn't God want me happy? Therefore, I should be able to sin. No. Any more than a parent lets their kid just do anything they want because it makes them happy. No, sometimes love overrides happiness. And it's the same with our father. Sometimes love overrides happiness. Yeah, he wants you happy, but sometimes your definition of happy and his definition of happy aren't the same. Does that make sense? Again, think about children. I'll pick on Lauren because she's here. Oh, she... Oh, it's okay, Lauren. When she was real little, like four, I think, give or take, if you wanted to make her happy, just give her anything with Dora on it. And that girl would grin from ear to ear. She loved Dora a lot, we'll just say. At one point, she was engaged to be married to Diego. <laughs> That was going to be her husband. Now, granted, long time ago, today, I don't remember the last time she watched a Dora video. She broke off the engagement with Diego a long time ago. They are well in the past. You can give her a Dora lunchbox, and I do not think you might get a smirk, but that's not going to make her happy. What happened? She's grown up some. Some of those things that we're just so bound and determined we have to have to make us happy. A couple years from now, if you're growing like you're supposed to be, all of a sudden, those are just in your past. Some of the things that make you happy now, you'll outgrow. You should outgrow. Now, the things that are innocent, whatever. If it makes you happy, go for it. Now, if it crosses a line with God, if it crosses a line with sin... No. Yes, he wants you happy, but not at the expense of something else. What's he ultimately want? He wants you living in his perfect will for your life. Finding happiness where he's got a plan for you, where he's got things for you, where he's doing things in you. Does that make sense? Love reigns over happiness. As a parent, sometimes you say no to the things they're just convinced make them happy. Same thing with our Heavenly Father. There are some times he says, sure, go ahead. There are other times he says, no, I wouldn't do that. And we're smart to listen. Even though, man, it sure looks like it'd make me happy, but he's saying no. 
So let's just keep following him. And actually, it could be a variety of things. It could be that it's not something for you. It could be that the timing's wrong. Maybe it's something he'll give you later. But what do we have to do? Just trust and obey and follow him. Recognizing that as we grow, things change. Hmm. Paul did not find happiness in being whipped and persecuted, but he found happiness in in knowing it was going to produce a great reward. Most people today, most adults, I won't say all, there's a lot of adults today, they're not working their job because they love it so much. Now, I hope you love your job or enjoy your job. That does make it easier. But most people don't do it because they love it. Why are they doing it? For a paycheck. Because they need money to meet the needs and necessities of life, to get some of those other things that we do consider to be wants, that some of which make us happy. But we work the job to get the money because we think it leads to happiness, right? Isn't that the American dream? All right. But then as we grow, what do we begin to learn? Money isn't the goal. Money is just a tool that gets you to a goal. But as you grow, your goals change. At one point, for a lot of us, the goal is just to get the stuff. We want the house, we want the car, we want the spouse, we want the kids, we want the family, the career, all the trappings that go with it. But then as you get a little older in the Lord, you begin to realize there's some things more important than the stuff. In fact, what's the most important thing to God? I, several of you, people. What's most important to Him? People. In the eyes of God, money was never the goal. Money is a tool to get the goal, which is people. He's all about people. And the more we become like Him, we'll find our own goals shifting to be more about people and less about us. More about their stuff and less about our stuff. More about helping them and less about helping ourselves as we become more outward focused. Um, Acts 20, verse 35. I think I gave you that one. Paul says, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus that He said, It is more blessed to give than receive. Let's do it again. It's more happy to give than to receive. When does that become true? When you become more like Him. You begin to draw happiness out of helping someone else, out of being a blessing for someone else, when your love becomes outward and not inward. Does that make sense? Does God want you happy? Oh, absolutely. He's a good parent. But that does not give us the liberty to do just anything we want to. We still live within the confines of His plan for our life, with His will for us. God wants you to be the happiest person around while you're living right in the middle of His perfect will for your life. That's where the truest happiness will be found. So when the road gets hard, and it will, count it all joy. Why? Because number one, that's what you need to get through the trial you're facing. But then number two, there'll be a reward attached. And the reward on the other side will bring you great happiness. Amen.